welcome to this episode of Tasby Time Talks in Medical Education. Hi, I'm Kim. I'm one of the events team for TASME and I'm one of your guest hosts for this episode. I'm also a anaesthetic trainee in the Northwest. And I'm Cleone, I'm the vice chair for TASME um, and the other guest host for this week's um, TASME Time podcast. Um, And I'm a senior clinical teaching fellow in Leeds. So we've got a great episode today and to celebrate International Women's Day, We're joined by a fantastic panel of women to share their experiences and advice for some of you early career educators and researchers out there. Um, So we've got Dr. Megan Brown, Miss Becky Fisher and Dr. Ayan Farah. So welcome to you all. So thank you everyone for, for being here with us tonight. We're so excited to have this chat. Um, I wanted to start off if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves in turn and your current roles. Um, so I don't know, Becky, would you mind going first? Yeah, it's absolutely fine. So I'm ST2, uh, so end of my SHO years in general surgery at the moment. Um, and I, uh, I'm just starting PhD in medical education at University of Manchester, which is funded by ASME. So I've got a um, ASME doctoral scholarship thing. And um, I, uh, yeah, I've been doing med research since about 2014, since I integrated and I've done all sorts of different things, but mostly research with some teaching. So uh, kind of from that perspective, really. That's fab, really interesting. What's your research in? So um, uh, my research sort of background originally was about how to... Um, how to do surgical simulation well uh, so sort of validating s- surgical simulators working out what's good about them whether they work um, and then gradually got more interested in surgical culture and things like that so I did a master's at imperial and um, in surgical education and focused on experiences of motherhood in surgical training um, and basically that was actually fairly harrowing, um, especially as somebody who's already signed up as, as a, a surgeon who would like to be a mother at some point. Um, and so, yeah, that was uh, really interesting. And I basically now do a lot of research on culture um, within surgery and medicine as a whole. So my current research is looking at how gender affects your pathway through uh, medicine and um, your specialty decisions. Oh. That's really interesting and really valuable work to be doing. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, Ayan, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about your um, current role and what you've been doing. Yeah, um, my name's Ayan. So um, currently I'm a rheumatology and internal medicine trainee. I'm an SD4 at the moment. Um, prior to starting training or rather going back into training, um, I worked for a year as an undergraduate medical education fellow. So that was sort of... Um, doing some uh, it was predominantly placement based um, but I did also do, do some central teaching with um, Imperial um, and the year before that I did my PG cert in medical education um, and kind of uh, following on from uh, the teaching fellow role I've uh, done a bit a few bits of sort of research which is ongoing in uh, uh, psychological safety and simulation and uh, the pastoral role of the clinical teaching fellow um, and on the side I'm, I've got an interest in humanitarian medicine so I'm currently doing a diploma in the medical care of uh, catastrophes and um, I have done some sort of te- some teaching in the past in um, sort of international context and resource poor settings so that's me 
Wow, that's so interesting and so different as well to hear about the um, disaster relief um, work as well. Um, fab, thank you. And um, finally, we've got Megan as well. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. I'm Megan. Um, I am a senior lecturer in medical education at the University of Buckingham. Um, I'm program lead there as well for their postgraduate certificate in medical education. And I'm also a teaching fellow in medical education research at Imperial College in London. Also have connection to ASME. I'm um, currently their director from the membership um, and, and have been since the summer of last year. Ah, thanks so much for that. Um, I'm going to hand over to Kim. Do you want to take some questions? Yeah. Um, it sounds like we've got a really great panel tonight. So I think we'll just start with a nice and open question. Um, does someone want to share how you first got involved in medical education? What really got you interested? If one of you has a nice story about that. Shall I pick off since I kicked off the last questions? I think um, for me, it was interesting because I, I didn't really pick it, to be honest. Um, I integrated in anatomy and surgery um, and uh, the team that I was working for at King's College London do a lot of simulation work. Um, and I kind of started doing that, but it was very different simulation to anything that I'd seen teaching fellows do as a student. You know, it wasn't to do with A to E scenarios and resus. It was to do with, you know, how you teach technical skills and it kind of tied in really to you know all the problems we see as students earlier on in life um, you know you criticize GCSE syllabuses and stuff like that and and think how could you improve that this is annoying why why can it not be better how can they test us better and so yeah that's that's how I got into that I realized that there's a whole academic field that looks at how do you teach people and particularly in this field how do you do it safely and also supportively. So yeah, I started doing that um, and just absolutely loved it. And it was interesting because me and my best friend both started doing that research. She did it very intensely for a while and then said, no, nah, I want to do clinical. And I did the other way around. I did a bit more clinical and they said, no, I want to do, I want to do med ed. And um, was there anyone along the way that kind of encouraged you to keep going in that field? Who, who kind of helped you along that journey? Yeah, well, I I think it was more that I just stumbled into a really dynamic group. Um, so I was uh, I kind of fell into this group at King's College London who were running the module I was doing, and they were publishing like the registrar who was running the module was publishing like twenty papers a year, like it was sickening. And it, there was this sort of there was this sort of pyramid of of activity where all the students, even by the end of the year, had two publications or three publications. It was absolutely insane. And actually, it was just a kind of the, the fever and energy of that was really exciting. And that, that's kind of my my tip, really, for people starting out as med students is if you find a group that's like that and they're dynamic and they're exciting and they want you to help just join them it doesn't really matter what the topic is because you'll either work out yes that's exactly what I want to do or you'll work out okay now I know that I have all these skills and now I know what I want to do and that's definitely worked out for both me and my friend who is now a urology PhD student um and yeah it's just finding the right people yeah I think that really highlights the importance of finding a good community and uh finding those people that can really help you along whatever journey you take, um, whether it's medical education or not. Um, Megan, do you have any kind of experiences on those lines, whether you're helping people or if you had any mentors as well that helped you along the way? 
Yeah, definitely. I, I, my experience is very similar to Becky's actually in that I really fell into medical education actually. And I mean, we can cycle back to that later, but I think that's actually one of the problems of, for trying to get started in medical education when everything is seems to be quite opportunistic, seems to be quite, you know, sort of in the right place at the right time. Um, my actual first involvement with medical education wasn't until the foundation program. And I was really just looking for a project to sort of um, tick that audit box on my portfolio. And there just happened to be an email that went around people that were sort of recruiting for some help on a study about um, F1 led ward rounds. Um, And actually that was my first sort of point of contact and point of support within a peer group wasn't necessarily led by a senior person or anyone with a huge amount of research it was really peer-led research and you know sure there's a lot I'd do differently now but that was a really helpful foot in the door in terms of just even opening my eyes to the fact that you um, can do research in medical education I always just thought it was teaching you know I went to a PBL medical school I thought it was just um, people who wanted to become PBL facilitators which was something I was interested in Um, but that was really eye-opening for me in terms of learning that there was an academic field there and that sort of kick-started my journey in terms of then going on to do a PG cert and eventually into a into a PhD and actually finding out it was it was the teaching and research that I really enjoyed more so than the clinical practice and that's really shaped my career path but there's been a lot of mentors along the way and I don't want to bore you with it but um yeah definitely that peer network and certainly my PhD supervisor as well been a huge mentor for me still is um and someone that's really helped support me in in terms of building that professional network that involves her but also goes beyond her so I mean you're not boring us with it um at all (laughs) well thank you (laughs) are are these mentors um women and how is that important to you um having role models that you can look to who are the same gender yeah, it is important. These mentors are women. You know, it's not like I sort of planned that and was like, uh, refuse input from anyone who's not a woman. A woman. Um, but it, it just seems to have happened that way because, I mean, I've got two kids. So I had two maternity leaves during my PhD um, and sort of quite a few issues within um, the second pregnancy. At least I became disabled during that pregnancy. Um, and it was really helpful to have a supervisor who was also a mother and sort of understood um, some of what I was going through or could empathise with some of that. Um, so that was a really valuable sort of kind of point of support for me to have um, in terms of someone who I just felt like I could go to. There was that openness there. There was going to be that understanding and, and not that kind of judgment of, actually, I can't make this meeting or can I have a bit of flexibility in terms of this deadline or this thing that we're doing together? Um, So it has been, yeah, I'd say that's been uh, an important aspect of that mentorship for me. Not that, you know, I've not had mentorship more broadly. I have, there's been really helpful people of of all genders along that that sort of career path for me, but I have found really valuable um, support in women. Yeah, I was just going to add um, that, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I've had similar um, experiences, but I think it's valuing um, the different styles of mentorship that you get and whether it's, you know, supervision and, and uh, mentoring. Um, because so, you know, my team that I was just talking about, they're extremely dynamic and publishing loads. They taught me so much about the hustle of academia, basically. Um, but 
that would they would have no idea what I want to do with my life or uh, what my ongoing pathway is or um being in a more holistic sense um whereas now for example yeah I essentially I'm in the same sort of um uh, Megan is is one of my PhD supervisors <laughs> and um she's the same age as me such a high flyer I'm loving it and um and Gabrielle Finn who is um her, her her mentor is also my mentor as well and it's more holistic in the sense of okay when you finish your PhD what are you doing with your life do you want to go back to only clinical do you want to be trying to line up other jobs so you're a clinical academic do you want to be an academic like Megan um so it's getting those people who who want uh, kind of mentoring you through or coaching also you through um what you want to do with your life um but then there's also the sort of specific teaching and academic um roles as well I think that's really important. Um, and sorry to jump back in, but I, I, yeah, I think that's really critical. And what I would say is that you can have mentors who do those different things for you, as, as Becky has said. Um, but yeah, definitely really helpful to just have a mentor who is willing to listen. And I was very open with my PhD supervisor with with Gabs when I first started that I was like, I, I came into the program knowing that I didn't want to practice clinically. I wanted this to be my career and actually I'd had a lot of people who weren't my mentor for um for very good reasons say to me that's not possible you can't have a career in medical education research if you're not willing to practice clinically mm. obviously that's complete rubbish because there are so many people who have either non-clinical backgrounds or maybe they were practicing they don't practice anymore biomedical scientists people who, who are trained in the health sciences um but it was only through her support that I came to realise that and came to realise that actually there were career paths. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's really important to have those open conversations, but feel like you can have them and that the person's not going to judge you and tell you you can't sort of move forwards. Thanks for sharing those experiences, both of you. Um, I have a lot of questions about <laughs> them, but one of the things that kind of springs to mind is about how do you go around finding a mentor and um, and finding someone that kind of fits the way your way of working your mentality and mindset as well yeah I think I suppose my perspective will be a bit different just because I'm not in a uh, research role at the moment um, but from I guess the way I sort of look at um, mentorship is trying to find people who are doing what you want to do and people who are um, challenging kind of the status quo in terms of we all know that, you know, within kind of like the context of medical education, there's lots of things that happen, I say, particularly in the clinical context that are quite detrimental. So what one thing for me that I always stood out was um, those people who are doing things slightly differently. So my own sort of example was one of the things that kind of got me interested in medical education. I'd always done some sort of teaching for like most of my kind of like um, adult life in terms of tutoring or mentoring in some capacity but it was just seeing how a lot of the um kind of the older school um uh, clinicians would teach especially in the clinical setting that started to kind of get me thinking and um and and look at ways that it could be done differently um because i i'm from that generation where a lot of us were taught through sort of by learning through humiliation um, and um, and realizing how um, I suppose detrimental and not conducive it was to effective learning um, that kind of started me on my journey in terms of wanting to um, become I suppose a more proficient educator learn the tools of how do you actually teach how do you teach in a clinical context um, and in terms of looking for mentors I always try to find people who were um, doing things in a slightly different way and who were um 
addressing that that uh, problem um, and actually getting uh, students motivated and interested and turning up to clinics and turning up to to theatre sessions. So there have been a few people kind of along the way that um, I've looked at as as being um, role models. So in particular, a consultant that I worked with while I was a core trainee who then ended up becoming uh, one of my um, bosses when I got the clinical teacher the teaching fellow job so there was a those two of them uh both acute medic um, acute medical consultants both having roles in teaching undergraduate and postgraduate and both kind of doing things very differently um uh and I think some of the things that I really liked about their style and the way that they that they uh, uh the, the way that they taught was uh flattening the hierarchy and um and also uh making kind of clinical learning relevant in terms of uh, uh, directly applying it to what uh, students would be doing in the future as as as, as uh, doctors so uh, so yeah that's those are kind of those are sort of the people that I would look at as as being role models so um slightly different I suppose uh, Becky and Megan in the sense that not research based but um just sort of more practical and uh, directly relevant to the clinical side of things yeah, I, I think, um, you know, saying about choosing mentors, um, <clears throat> the vast majority of it for me has been trial and error. Um, just if you think that you might gel with somebody or have something in common or might be able to learn something from, approach them, go and have a chat with them after a talk or after, you know, and get, get you know, get involved. The fact that, you know, any listeners are listening to a podcast in their own time shows that you're the sort of person who'll probably go and do these things anyway. Um, so go and speak to that person and say, that was really interesting. I've never heard that opinion before. I've been doing this. Can I, you know, can I email you or would you, would, I might have some time to do some projects or something like that. Um, and, or can I shadow you if you're doing something clinical? So, um, I think definitely trial and error. I reckon probably only sort of one in 20 of the sort of people that I've spoken to in that sort of way have ended up being any sort of, you know, meaningful kind of mentorship or, um, you know, guiding role. Um, but you just actually never know who those people are going to be when you first meet them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to tell. But so just go for it, basically. Don't be picky. <laughs> I was just going to add to what Becky was saying in that one thing that I found helpful because I get a little bit wobbly socially sometimes was um, trying to go into those situations knowing what my kind of elevator pitch was, right? So like you're in an elevator, it's very American, is it? You're in an elevator, you're in a lift um, and you've only got the space of a few floors to really pitch to someone what it is that you're looking for, what you can offer them and what you want those next steps to be. So just having a really clear idea of what your ask is. And actually I found, um, and, and now speaking as someone who's got a role as a staff member, if someone comes to you and they say, this is what I can offer you, this is how I can help you, everyone like in medical education is super busy um, especially people who are juggling you know kind of you've got your clinical and you've got your academic workload so if you can go to them and say actually you know this is my training this is my skill set and this these are the sort of things I can help you with there often will be a project where they're just looking for a little bit um, kind of some extra hands some extra extra people to help out with that project. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say is that I used to really approach mentorship through a, a lens of I'm going to this conference and I'm going to speak to the most senior people at this conference and that's going to be wonderful for my career. But actually what I've learned is that often there's a lot 
a lot of value, sometimes even more value in connecting with people who are at your level, connecting with your peers. Um, so going into it with the mindset of actually, I want to get to know people at the same stage. They're then going to be quite a supportive network for me and they become your future collaborators. So a lot of the time, like, like Becky said, I've, I've had lots of these conversations and at the time they seem to have gone well. They don't really go anywhere. People are really busy, um, you know, very senior people have a lot on their plates, often have to be, um, it, you know, if it's not in the confines of their formal role, might struggle to provide that support. Um, but connecting with peers and collaborating and sort of learning and growing together, I found a really sort of valuable way also of just getting a bit of that kind of peer mentorship or, or peer networking. Yeah, and some of the people that I uh, that I sort of uh, became my my little buddies when I was a med student at conferences are now also the PhD students and registrars. It turns out in same specialties and things like that, and that we we just hung like clung together because we were the only med students at certain conferences, um, <laughs> just little keynotes. And now it's great. I'm glad that we have that relationship because you see these people around all the time. It's a small world. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really excellent top tip in terms of making it feel slightly less daunting to find people that are of your own kind of level and experience um, and get to know. And I think that's why TASME is so successful in kind of building people and networking as well, because we're quite approachable in terms of we're all of a training level. So people feel that they kind of fit in quite well. So that's a nice kind of starting way um, to set out, I suppose, isn't that? Um, Hope so. <laughs> I know we've talked... <laughs> I know we've talked a little bit about um, kind of um, research. I know Megan, we, you said about knowing that you didn't you didn't know you could get into medical education no. research. I thought it was just kind of initially teaching, um, and I'm kind of interested about your experiences um, of that that divide or how things are kind of different in medical education. It's not just teaching and your roots into research. Yeah, it's a re it's a really good point. It, it just took me a long time to get my head around that. But they, they are very connected, although they do sort of seem like islands. I think we have a real problem in that there's often this big gap between what's happening in the academic literature and actually, um, you know, what we're doing in practice. Um, that kind of problem of the, the ivory tower, right, of academia and um, actually making sure that what happens there informs practice. I think the onus is... Um, it's a kind of two-way street. I, you know, I think researchers need to do more to sort of um, raise awareness of, of what they're doing and sort of bring that into teaching. Um, but I also think that, you know, just knowing that there are journals out there like The Clinical Teacher is a really good way to sort of just start reading some literature and get a sense of, of what's out there. There's also a few... Um, really great like uh, med ed papers podcasts that you can sort of listen to and I can maybe send you them if you want to link to them um, that just sort of help you in a quite a digestible way kind of just start to learn about the literature because it's so massive you can't just be like right, I'm going to go and learn about what's happening in medical education research but there are quite a few nice accessible resources where you can just start to get a sense of what's in the field and then like you said, maybe think about the roots in. And I think the easiest thing to do when you're getting started is to try and connect with an established team. So like what Becky's already spoken about, finding an enthusiastic group of people that can involve you in an established project where you've then got some sort of like on the job supervision with what you're doing. You can sort of start developing that skill set and see if it is something you enjoy rather than necessarily trying to get your own ideas in the first instance off the ground. I think that's quite challenging. It's not impossible and there are routes to doing that like the grants at ASME um, but I think that's a lot more challenging if you're coming at that as your very first thing that you're doing. 
Yeah, I think the interesting thing as well is if you're kind of the downside of going that route is you kind of sometimes end up deep into academia uh, as somebody who's actually interested in teaching. Um, and so like, actually, it's not re- it doesn't really matter that it's med ed, it could be renal cell carcinoma that you're researching because actually it's very academic what you're doing um so another another option would be you know study the things around you that are right in front of you so what 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 are you feeling about how you're being taught pbl how you're being taught these different things how you're being taught on the ward like you like megan like you said with the uh f1 led ward rounds and things that's a great way to integrate it into your clinical training which i haven't done very well i don't think um uh you know to have projects that are related to things in front of you um hilariously now I'm getting kickback the other way from that in that um, my team have recently started doing uh, robotic surgery and um, I said oh I, I actually know quite a bit about how you train people to do robotic surgery and they were like oh do you that's weird I was like yeah I have like four research papers on it and like everybody was like what <laughs> because it's completely un it's completely unhooked from my clinical life and what I do clinically um so that's kind of a bad thing and a good thing, I guess, because I haven't been able to apply that into my real life. Um, but then at the same time, it just shows that just do what you're interested in. It doesn't have to be involved. It has doesn't have to be related to your clinical work. Um, for example, for me in the future, I may be a surgeon and then be a medical education academic. Well, that's what I'd like to do um, and have both things. And they will probably be fairly unrelated, actually. Um, so the kind of the world's your oyster. You can pick whatever you want. I was just gonna say I I probably just echo what Becky said in terms of um, uh, kind of looking at what is what sort of challenges you encounter just in your day-to-day work uh, or just in your day-to-day teaching activities and what um, uh, and where you think you might be able to make a a difference so for example one of the projects that uh, we did last year was uh, revolved around um, how how we maintain psychological safety in simulation because that was something that we were all kind of acutely aware of um, uh, being um, an issue for uh, the, the students that we were training in particular a lot of them being kind of final year um, students and um, kind of that anticipation of them then going on to do foundation training and all of the kind of worries that they had about becoming doctors and managing unwell patients um, and so yeah so this was obviously this was not sort of a clinical um, uh, uh, um, a clinically sort of based uh, project but it was just something that we uh, we noticed may, may have been an issue during the course of our um, uh, working sort of uh, uh, time. So, yeah, so I think a lot of us won't kind of may not go down the road of um, doing kind of formal research. Um, so sometimes it is just a case of looking around and seeing what where you can kind of make a difference in your day to day work. Yeah. At the risk of sounding like a massive pedant, which is kind of my vibe anyway, so it's it's not really surprising. Um, can I just say there's I think there's a lot there's a sort of balance to be struck because one of the things that we sort of see a lot in the field is people doing this really well-meaning research, um, but it because it's not like you know they've they've maybe identified a problem in their practice and they want to know more about it, but because um, they maybe are approaching it from a more novice perspective or like for example when I did that first project in medical education we did a survey and I knew nothing about surveys or survey methodology or what I should have been doing so then when we came to try and publish and write that up things get more tricky and I think that's where we then see um, people starting to become disheartened or or sort of um, 
struggle to sort of share or know what to do with those findings. Um, so I think that there is a sort of a, a balance or, or a line to be struck. If it's just something that you're doing to try and sort of improve your own practice locally and it's more evaluative, I think that that becomes less of a problem. If it's going to be something that you want to take um, and you want it to inform practice on a larger scale, I think you do need to be mindful of you know you need to know enough about the research method and the approach that you're using to make sure it's of of a quality where people can see how it might apply to their practice in another setting I guess the the compromise that you know that I have done in the past is um had something in front of me that I wanted to to do research about and then actually just find out what is the team to do it with um which uh and then and then you end up working with them because honestly people very rarely get approached by people who are very seriously interested in the field that they're doing no yeah and then if you um if you actually intend to stick around and do and graft and actually work and learn um those people are rare as hen's teeth in 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 coming towards a a new team um so yeah so if you really want to do it just find the people i did exactly that i wanted to do simulation but i wanted to do it in breast surgery so i looked up breast surgery simulation there was one guy he happened to be in london in the whole world he happened to be in london went and did my elective with him um and then published with him kind of thing and that kind of got this whole thing started but it it married together the interests um and obviously how often would he get an email saying i want to do exactly that research never so um, precisely and i think that's sort of what i meant when i said go to the literature i meant like you know have a think about what you're interested in and where you see those gaps and then do a bit of reading about what's already been what's already out there and been done and yeah you can pick names out of the literature you can pick names off platforms that a lot of us are already active on like twitter and 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 sort of you see a lot of people tweeting about their research and what they're interested in so I think that's another helpful route for kind of making those connections um Ayan, did you have a point that you wanted to make as well? uh, yeah it's actually it's actually kind of been made already um but yeah just to kind of reiterate getting kind of getting people involved who are um either doing kind of research that you're interested in or um can kind of help you with the methodology and, and um kind of framing your your, your research question as well because I think that's something that um I mean obviously me being sort of quite uh, early on in this um in this journey uh we we um we kind of had to do that because you know i didn't have that research background so approach somebody who um had a very strong kind of uh, publishing record and a strong uh, uh background in research who was also running a module that we were uh, uh attending as part of our um kind of uh, research uh, uh aspect of, of the job and actually that was really helpful because she gave us a lot of um uh, pointers she helped steer the, the the work that we were doing and um i think it, w- it would have been very difficult to have done that without having somebody who had that sort of um, that background and knew the methodology and could kind of provide guidance in that way. Yeah, I, I think that just goes to show that we need other people. We don't work in a vacuum, and it's really going back to just finding your people and finding people who can help you on your journey. Um, I think moving slightly left field um, away from. The cooperation, are there any barriers that you've kind of, that you've faced either in medicine or medical education um, as as women? And are there any things that you particularly would like to see change in that regard? 
I mean, I can, I can start. I love a good, love a good rant. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that there's still quite a lot of work that needs to be done in the field. I mean, I personally, and again, I can only really speak from my experience, and that's coloured by my perspective and uh, and my own lived experience. But um, there have been quite a few challenges. I mean, I left cl- clinical practice, so I took a very non-traditional route into medical education. Not that there are clear or necessarily any traditional routes, um, but it's quite, it's not really typical to, to do clinical training and then not practice. Um, and then I left at a junior stage of my career, which has been frowned on sometimes, not understood, seen as they're being representative of there's something being wrong with me. Often it's assumed, um, you know, it's because of me having become a parent or you know not being able to cope some in some way with the with the clinical work um so I think there is a stigma there and that has closed off the options for me in terms of the roles that I'm able to apply for um so non-clinical roles are not typically as well remunerated as clinical roles but often at an academic level anyway uh, you know kind of the same or similar teaching and academic work um I'm disabled. I mentioned that already. Um, I use a walking stick most of the time, all the time at the minute. Um, and I'm neurodivergent. And I think actually both aspects of, of that identity have, have presented challenges. And I think it's quite intersectional in terms of uh, being a woman and then kind of being disabled, being neurodivergent on, on top of that um, presents a unique challenge. Um, and, and I think it manifests in lots of different ways, um, both on my own kind of personal level, dealing with things like chronic pain, but also um, being able to access what's required um, to help me kind of flourish and be able to do my job properly at, at work. Um, and what I found in, you know, so like one just small example, what I found in MedEd is that um and I know we're meeting on an evening, but <laughs> meetings often are on an evening. Sometimes they're in early morning. Um, I'm a mum. I know that people have really busy clinical jobs and often they do med ed outside of that work. But this is the time that, that I have with my kids. So that, that's just one kind of small example. Like all of the seminars on the postgraduate certificate that I work on are in the evening. And that's kind of part of the expected routine work. Um, so that's, you know, that is a challenge in terms of managing timetables and childcare and having to sort all of that on top of everything else. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's a lot more that I could rant for ages about this, but um, that's probably a snapshot. Yeah, I think I'm um, I'm kind of a similar theme, but a few steps behind Megan in that sense. Uh, so I um, I had an ankle injury all the way through uh, training. I, uh, I broke my ankle on an FY1 social uh, and I am now kind of moving towards the that being a permanent disability at, or I need a, a fourth operation on my ankle. So I've had my training extended by two years during that time. Um, now, I think the impact that that's had is... Um, a lot of people within academia and with teaching, you A, have to be really reliable and B, you have to give up a huge amount of your time. So it's and it's all outside of work. It's all almost all not remunerated. Uh, so I teach on an integrated degree course. I teach about 40 hours a year. It's not that much, but I get don't get paid anything for it. So that is a huge problem. Yeah, Megan's putting her thumbs down on our little video here, which you won't be able to hear, but it's uh, yeah big thumbs down for for, for um you know med ed in that sense 
Um, and that's really difficult because that actually, you know, I'm, I, I recently got married. I'm kind of settling down a bit. I'm thinking about ha- having a family. And that is huge because actually if I'm spending that time, I should be earning. And in the future, I'm going to need childcare for that time. And so I'll be in a net loss. And so other people who don't have those issues are going to obviously flourish. Um, so it's having that support there and um, checking that things like meetings if they could be in hours where people don't need childcare, where people don't need other things um, uh, that that we can like cater for those things. Um, from my point of view as well, the other elements that come into it, like disability, personality type, neurodivergence, is all things that like those people, including me, need uh, need much more time. You need you need a lot more time to to um, recover from things. Um, so I've had chronic pain now since that happened. So 20, 2018. Um, so I need more sleep and more rest and da da da. And so that's um, that is in itself also a barrier because compared to other people who might just do an all nighter and just get on with the project. I'm probably not going to do that because I will uh, be in a heap by the end of the week. Um, And that's really difficult. Um, But then, you know, again, this goes back to the mentor thing. You know, Megan is my mentor. If I said that that was what was going on, which it has done in the last six months or so, she'd be like, babe, try harder. (laughs) You know, I've been through that. You know, it's it's absolutely fine. Um, uh, Yeah. So like you think you've got issues, you know, so it's it would be very understanding. Um, But yeah, that's the thing overall. And I think I guess things we're circling around is things like academic clinical careers which is a whole thing you have to be extremely dedicated to get through academic clinical training um I'm doing it unofficially essentially at the moment I'm doing part-time training part-time PhD slash disability um and that is really difficult because when I have a day off quote-unquote I uh, I might actually be teaching or I'll be doing on PhD time, which I'm being paid for that. That is my, you like today, for example, that was PhD time. That was not time, uh, you know, for, for covering an extra shift or something like that. So there's stigma all around, really. And it's really difficult to get through the clinical and the academic. Um, so, uh, yeah, barriers left, right and centre, I think. But it's just trying to work out what you want and fine some people might achieve incredible amounts but also they'll be typing at midnight and that's how it works yeah yeah go ahead Megan I was just going to say I think the approach that we often take within medical education and I I think I'm speaking you know now from what I've seen of undergraduate students as well as for them postgraduate students and for staff is a very individualized approach to accommodation so you have to advocate quite um, aggressively often for what you need to succeed and that is draining that is tiring that takes a lot of time can be quite traumatic to have to tell lots of different people about what's going on in your life um, especially if that you know is very difficult for you to talk about um whereas you know we don't really take approach to just universally designing things so that they're accessible and so that they're inclusive which is um would really be a big transformation in the system um in my perspective allow a lot more people to to sort of participate um regardless of you know kind of what the barriers are that they face and and how they're sort of connected to their experience so i think that um it, it would require a shift in thinking. But I think that some of the issues that we're talking about is because we do take that quite individualised approach. Becky, yeah, sorry. Can I throw in a little, uh, maybe an unusual barrier, um, which is very International Women's Day themed. Um, and 
uh, in the so if you're I experience this all the time in surgery in that uh, if you're a female surgeon or female academic you are disproportionately involved in things which sounds great but it's actually sometimes not so for example I mean for example this podcast um, I'm not very well this week I'm doing it I'm really enjoying it but I might not be otherwise doing this I might be doing my PhD work which I probably should be doing you know what I mean and there's a lot of I, I essentially Megan and I have both been incredibly involved in advocacy diversity issues um, gender politics basically and um, that in itself is like a strange barrier because you get invited to do things disproportionately by people who are doing diversity well um but also it's a drain on time and you have to decide what you want to do um and what is important to you and whether actually you know i've been having these thoughts recently should should i be should i be mostly speaking at women in surgery events or should i be speaking at surgery events you know what i mean <laughs> and so and so it's a whole slightly different thing but i guess it's it, it, it gets your cv built up it's the opposite of a barrier but it's a barrier in some other ways because it uses time i i think within like academic and research environments as well that there's often the um they're sometimes called these one menial tasks where i mean it's happened to me before you're in a meeting and it's like oh megan will you take the minutes for the meeting that's not within my job description you know it, it's not um it, obviously i'm happy to help i'm happy to sort of row in and, and help the team along and, and help the meeting along but that does disproportionately happen to women that they're sort of delegated um uh, tasks and um often things that fall outside of their of the scope of their role um or, or don't sort of recognize the level of their of their seniority um because of the sort of stereotypes around um what it is to be a woman and, and what women can do thank you yeah there's a, a lot of really thought-provoking things there and a lot of really challenging barriers that you've all brought up and I'm not sure that I certainly have answers right now I don't know if any of you have any kind of solutions to the problems but I think problems highlighting problems is in itself a very useful thing to, to talk about I wonder whether we can um, end this discussion on a on a positive note um, and hear some of your career highlights or pick a career highlight um, that you'd like to kind of tell us all about yeah um so i think number one just has to be getting my phd so i like i did that with two kids um during the course of my phd there was covid there were the lockdowns meaning that the kids were there all the time like i said i became disabled so it was just quite a feat to actually reach the end of that process um, and that was a proud moment and then and this is going to sound really cringe because Becky is literally right here on this call, but then becoming a PhD supervisor after that point. Um, so, you know, like I said, my PhD supervisor is literally like my biggest mentor. Um, and I equally appreciate the supervision in whatever capacity for research, but particularly mm -hmm. PhD supervision because of the length of time it takes. That's a really significant role to assume. It can go really wrong. It's a, it's a kind of real position of power and privilege. Um, so that's that's a kind of a real milestone and a kind of highlight in my career to be able to to do that and and hopefully sort of work on myself and 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 hopefully do that job to the to the standard that that Becky deserves. Um, so yeah, I think for me, just kind of coming full cycle has been really fulfilling. That's fantastic, and definitely something that we're happy to celebrate with you. That's great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think like two uh, two highlights again for me. Um, I think one of them is um, I now teach on the surgical sciences BSc course that I did that stopped, got me into med ed in the first place. Um, so it's actually one of the only things that I it's my only formal teaching job actually, um, and uh, it is so rewarding because all these students are like. 20 and they want to be surgeons and it's a really diverse group and I'm often the only female trainer and they just like they are absolutely dying to have that mentorship and I will absolutely give that and I absolutely love it and it's just being able to come full circle and do that is incredible um, and being able to get people's foot in the door into into uh, something that they've been wanting to do for a long time and I even at that point when I was 21 I'd wanted to be a surgeon for six years already um, and those people are often in that same boat so that is incredible and seeing them at the end of the year they have their exams in a couple of weeks actually seeing them at the end of the year being able to do like crazy keyhole surgery and suturing and like all sorts then you're just like dude you're not even 21 yet this is incredible you're gonna have an amazing career and you're so enthusiastic uh, so I love that and then I think probably career highlights for me is always going to be travel involved with academia um and so stuff like I went to Florida when I was F1 and we went to Disney and stuff like that because I I was presenting a conference and then last autumn I went to ICRE the Canadian Med Ed Conference um and like they asked me like I was they asked me to speak on on stage like with a Britney mic basically and it was just like and people came up to me afterwards and they were like hey I know who you are you're doing all this great work about gender and surgery and stuff like that and you just made it just showed that like it actually is meaningful what I'm doing when I'm typing in my bedroom at 11 p.m cursing everything um then actually like people are taking that in and I'm being it's essentially like the highlight essentially I think other than the flying uh flights and uh and tan is like being part of the conversation um and that's what academia is for me is and med ed academia particularly is you're being part of the conversation to make education better in the future I'm going to the wrong conferences. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. It's so inspiring. I'm going to make you want to get on and do my work. It's very far away, don't go. It's fine. Asmi is amazing. I think it really goes to show that one positive experience can really have a huge impact um, on the rest of your career. And I think you both kind of demonstrated things that you want to really feed forward. Um, so... Ayan, do you want to wrap us up with a great career highlight? Yeah, um, a couple, I suppose my career is very short in comparison, I think, to Becky and uh, Megan. Short, short so far. Um, but um, in terms of sort of UK-based, um, a project that actually myself, Oliver, and our um, colleague Nazia did together, um, teaching kind of F1s and other junior doctors about issues relating to diversity within um patient care and medicine a, a series that we a series of uh, talks that we uh, teaching sessions that we did uh, called diversity matters that covered um, aspects of kind of um, uh, disparity in healthcare in uh, patients from minority ethnic minority religious backgrounds lgbtq backgrounds and uh, yeah uh, 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 gender as well so um, it was it was really um, uh, it was a highlight because it was something that i don't think is done um in the in the way that we did it, at least in terms of um, looking at kind of the impact on patients clinically and their care, um, and looking at kind of ways that we as clinicians can be more mindful of um, 
these differences within our patients that can then impact um, uh, how they how they receive healthcare, how they interact with it, um, and kind of give practical tips to junior doctors in how they can kind of be more supportive of patients from from different minority backgrounds, um, and also just sort of celebrate diversity in that respect as well. Um, and then if I'm thinking of like an international example, then it would probably be um, some of the work that I did in. Um, uh, kind of around um, uh, sort of simulation and recognizing of the unwell patient and management of the unwell patient in uh, Somalia. Um, so I did that. Uh, so it's kind of an on- ongoing work, actually, um, and hoping to kind of go back out there this year to do some more sessions. But um, we've kind of we've was working with an NGO um, that uh, delivers like medical education in Africa. Um, and so what we did was we designed a series of sort of simulation sessions and we delivered these to nursing students students, uh, medical students, paramedic students, and kind of got them to do something that's not very well done there, which is um, interprofessional working and kind of got them to do sort of interprofessional sessions where they would, you know, simulate like an ambulance sort of handover in A&E and then managing an unwell patient from there. Um, And also sort of focusing on things, introducing uh, the concept of like a news chart uh, introducing the concept of SPAR so these are all things that d- didn't exist there um, and um, as a result kind of the mortality and, and things was was it was quite high in, 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 in that in that country because of the um, the fact that there aren't sort of established mechanisms of com- clinical communication and monitoring of an unwell patient and so we thought by um, running these sessions with sort of final year nursing final year medical students we could then sort of teach the next generation of um, uh, healthcare workers and clinicians um, and hope hopefully that then have a knock-on effect on kind of patient care so yeah that's I say that's probably one of my one of my highlights that was a really great discussion um, I think we've had some really great points about mentoring and how to get involved. And I think we've had some really great experiences there from everyone. And hopefully that's inspired a few of you out there to get involved and get stuck in. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting to hear all the different experiences in terms of how to get into um, both teaching and education, um, but particularly the research side of things. And we've heard three quite different stories and different parts of the Um, journey there as well so hopefully that's inspired you to get involved a little bit so thank you again to our guests Dr Megan Brown, Dr Ian Farah and Miss Becky Fisher for sharing those experience with us and if you've enjoyed today's episode don't forget to rate review and subscribe you can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk and make sure you follow us on twitter at TASME underscore uk Thanks to the podcast team and the wider TASME committee, as well as Amlunya for our theme music. Thank you for listening to TASME Time, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.